0: Pastor Joe, I said, is this a typical crowd for the early service? He said, it's actually bigger than normal. (laughs) I said, well, then that means any excuses about snow days is totally out the window from now on. (laughs) And uh, that's good, right? Uh, Thank you for inviting me here to be with you today. And uh, as you know, my name is Ike Nicholson. My wife, Shauna, and our children are in the back, uh, some of our children, and uh, just one of them. Now, uh, so in almost uh, 25, 27 years of ministry, I have spent roughly 21 years in Appalachia. And uh, our mountains are not as big as yours, but they're older, but they're not as, <laughs> but, but they're not, they're not as big. And uh, <clears throat> there's a little thing that I learned in Appalachia that will help me here, and that's uh, when I start going a little long, somebody shout, Bring it on home, preacher! And I'll feel like I'm right at home if you do that. I won't be offended one little bit. You uh, probably don't remember me, but I remember you. It was Sunday, July 27th, 1997. Who was here that Sunday? Do you remember? What was the sermon on? Okay. <laughs> on, on, on Jesus, right? What did the preacher say about him? He was for him. Well, I brought a group of about 30 youth uh, to this church. I believe we were in, the, in, in Levi's house or in the student center at that time for the contemporary service, and um, I don't know if you remember me. I was the big good-looking guy, and um, we brought them here to the general assembly, and I remember how uh, wonderful you guys were, how hospitable you were, how kind you were. When we told you we were from West Virginia, you didn't start speaking slowly, <laughs> for which we were grateful. And uh, one of the things that I remember thinking, and the Lord has a way, I said, Lord, man, this church is awesome. I'd like to be the senior pastor here someday. <laughs> that's That's true. I guess we find that out with Tuesday night, Sean, so, but it is an honor to be here. Um, You know, at times like this, every preacher has one good sermon, one good sermon. So as a benefit to you, I decided to leave that one home today. (laughs) So you know, there's at least one sermon that's better than this one. And, uh, um, but uh, uh, in, in all seriousness, it is a tremendous honor for us to be here with you today. There is a tremendous spirit in this place. And uh, <clears throat> pardon if I'm a little scratchy this morning, I went from 60% humidity to none. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm going to do the sound crew that they would try to help me. You know, I talked to a couple of friends of mine, and uh, you are a church that a lot of people know about. And uh, it's always interesting to me that people don't realize the impact that they have. Uh the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, is a small family, and we know a lot about each other. And uh the friends that I have uh who are many of them like-minded uh, uh with me, you know, I said, you know, it's 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 a lot of pressure because I, I haven't been dating in over 14 years, you know, this dating here. And um he said to me, he gave me some great advice. He said Just preach the sermon that uh, you would want them to hear, expecting them not to call you. I thought that was good advice. So we're going to pretend that you're going to say, no, send that guy back to Kentucky as quick as possible. And that's the sermon I'm going to preach to you this morning. And I'm going to preach it to you for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I want you to know a little bit about my heart. Now, up on the screen is a painting, and I'm going to read to you a uh, passage of Scripture, first of all, from the book of Genesis, beginning in the 29th chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Now, I know some of you are good disciples. You already have your Bibles memorized, and so that's fine. But if you don't have your Bibles memorized, pull out your Bible in Genesis chapter 29. That's the first book of the Bible. And verse 31 is where I'm going to start. Um, I will um, um, give you just a second. Actually, I'm going I'm to read first of all from verse 17. And uh, let, me, let me give you some quick background. You know the story of Abraham. And uh, he had a son named Isaac. <laughs> That's my real name, by the way. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the oldest. He was supposed to get the birthright, but he sold his birthright uh, to Jacob for just a bit of stew. And then Jacob later tricked Esau. Not only had he had his birthright already, but he also tricked him again and got his father's blessing. And because of that, uh, he's afraid Esau is going to try to kill him. And so uh, 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 Jacob's mother. Uh, Rebecca says, you need to go stay with my uncle, my uncle Laban. And so he heads off, and he is uh, staying with Laban, his uh, mother's brother. And he sees Laban has two daughters. And in verse 17 of uh, chapter 29, Leah's eyes were weak. Leah. My wife says it's pronounced Leah, but I always learned it Leah. Maybe it's because I'm a Star Wars baby, I don't know. Leah's eyes were weak. Now, let's, first of all, that's the Bible's way of saying she wasn't very good looking. Yeah. All right? It wasn't her eyes that were weak. It, it, like when I was a kid, we'd always, you know, you'd go on a blind date and they'd say, what does she look like? And they'd always say, she has a wonderful personality. Yeah. You knew what that meant, right? Yeah. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, what happens is, is Laban tricks Jacob and he winds up marrying Leah, but he doesn't realize it until the next morning after he's engaged in the things that married couples engage in. We have some young children in the room. Y'all don't need interpretation. You guys don't need interpretation. I was told I got to get rid of the you all. Y'all. Verse 31. Here's where it starts. Wow, we got a divided house. When the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The painting that's up on the screen here is a painting by a Dutch painter named Hendrik. And he is uh, uh, known by many scholars to be a painter who is obsessed with the story of Jacob. He has countless paintings just about Jacob and Esau. Now, you know, a lot of people are moved by music. Some people are moved by uh, 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 poetry, literature. I'm moved by art. Art speaks to me. I love art. And this painting spoke to me. Because if you looked at it without knowing the Bible verse, all you would see is is some young guy is yelling at some old guy. And although you can't see it really well, and that's intentional on the artist, it's not the projection team's fault, is you have there's a woman in the background peeking around the corner, and then there's a woman that has a glow on her face. Now, when you look at this painting, you just see this boring picture of a bunch of people in a kitchen. But if I were to tell you that the title of this painting... Is Jacob reproaches Laban, then you would know that this scene is about Jacob going to his uncle Laban and saying, Why did you trick me into marrying your oldest, eyes who are weakest daughter? And one of the things that we do when we read the Bible, especially those of us who have grown up in Sunday school, is we learn that Jacob is supposed to be the the hero of the story. But uh, Hendrik interprets this story much differently. As a matter of fact, Jacob, who's in the red, he is he's clouded by darkness. His father, I mean, sorry, his uncle Laban is is, has a has a look of, of, of of disgust on his face. But the woman Leah has that beautiful glow. And if you look at it real carefully, there's actually an aura that comes out from behind her head and surrounds her face. She's the heroine of this story, according to Hendrick, the painter of the, of this. She's the one who was the good and great one. Now, let me tell you what. Sometimes the Bible is just reflective of everyday life. Do you not find it strange, ladies, that Jacob thought that she was so... Uh, undesirable, so much so that the Bible says that he hated her, but somehow he was able to have four children with her? (laughs) Does that strike you as unusual? And what's powerful about this story is, is that she has four sons, and each of these sons is a mirror. She is a Christ figure, if you will. She is a precursor of what Christ will mean to the world because she has these four sons, two of which are a part of the lineage of Jesus. Levi and Judah both are connected to Joseph and to Mary, the parents of Jesus. And she names these children names that reflect not so much what is, but what she desires. She says to those who will listen to her, Reuben is the name I'm going to give the first child because God saw me. He saw that I'm hated. Maybe my husband will love me now. He doesn't love her. The second child comes along and she says, I'm going to name this one Simeon, which means to hear, because God has heard my heart. Maybe my husband will love me now. He doesn't love her. She has a third child, and she names this child Levi, which means attached or to be connected to. That's what the name means. It's not by accident that Levi becomes the patriarch of the priests who connect the people of God to God. Maybe because God has been attached to me, maybe now my husband will be attached to me. But he still hates her. And then she has a fourth child. And in the midst of her husband's rejection of her, she says, I'm going to name this child Judah, which means praise. Now this, if you will, is a precursor to what the New Testament will teach us. So I want you to put your finger or your marker there, and I want you to go to 1 John 3, verse 16. Now this is the epistles of John, not the gospel of John. Now everybody knows John 3, 16, Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I learned it in King James. That's my mother required me to do that when I was a kid. That whosoever believeth in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. And my parents required me to learn John 3.17, for God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Here's a little hint to you. 1 John 3:16 talks about the same exact thing that the Gospel of John 3:16 talks about. You see? So look at John chapter 3, and just like I started a little bit earlier in the Genesis text, I'm going to start a little bit earlier in the first John text, chapter 3. Now we've had some laughs, we've had some fun, now I'm going to get serious. Verse 13, John says, do not be, to, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, the world hates you. the world hates you. Now this is a tough lesson to hear, isn't it? There's been significant studies that have been done over the years about Christians in the church, and the attitude that the world has about church has decreased significantly over the past couple of decades. As a matter of fact, one of the things that the studies most of the studies have in common is is that the world sees churches that is Christians as people who are judgmental, people who are only concerned about rules, concerned about things that I should do and should not do, and at the same time we seem to be self-congratulatory about ourselves, about how righteous we are, how we are in and everyone is out. And John as he pens this letter, begins to get to the heart of probably where most of us are when we think about this. Because if the truth is known, most of us are blissfully ignorant of what the reputation that we carry has with the world. So let me ask you this. I was at the last Monday night football game of the old Cleveland Browns. The old, Pastor Joe, i got to use some sports for you if no one else. (laughs) And there was a guy that sat next to me And the whole first half, he used all kinds of eloquent language. At halftime, there was a lull in the crowd, and he looked at me and said, What's your name? And my name's like, Really, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm in sales. He said, Which company? I said, The largest on planet Earth. No, actually I said, "I'm a pastor," and he went, "Oh. I'm going to go get a hot dog and a big Coke." <laughs> he never came back for the second half. <laughs> and I was a young preacher that time, and I realized you got to be real careful. When you meet somebody for the first time and you tell them that you're a pastor or you tell them that you're a Christian, because I dare say that most of us probably don't use that term as the first thing that we talk about when we want to introduce folks. I want you to use that as the first thing that you ever say to people that you meet. That I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, I know that most folks will say, oh, and they'll walk away from you. But it will be a perfect opportunity for you to begin to speak to where people are, to begin to introduce them to who Jesus Christ is. We'll probably talk about, somebody will probably say, well, what's your vision for South Suburban Christian Church? And I'll probably say something like, I have no clue, I'm not here yet. <laughs> but I do know this, the Bible gives me a vision for the church of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the church of Jesus Christ is to be about preaching, teaching, and healing. And that in pretty much every congregation throughout the United States that is leading the charge to building the kingdom of God, those are essential things in their identity. And yet, you know, the truth is that I wonder if the fact that so many people dislike Christians is because there's some truth that we are judgmental. But do you know that when the judge says you're not guilty, that's also a judgment, too? You see? And so, in that sense, we are not judgmental. Listen, John writes this. By this, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for when our hearts condemn us. I like the way John puts that. Because every single one of us have a time in our life when we know we're broken. As a matter of fact, that's when the healing begins. You don't know to go to a doctor unless you've got some symptoms. You don't know that you need your leg set until you see the bone sticking through the skin. You don't go to the physician and say, I've been having these issues, and then they discover that you have a disease that is treatable or curable or a condition that can be fixed or at least managed. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. Our hearts do condemn us. Because the Bible says is that given the, the, the choice between light and darkness, we human beings always prefer to run to the darkness, not to the light. Why? Because the light's painful. Even though the light is liberating, even though the light is healing, the light is painful. Because it reveals to us who we are. Because we're really good at judging everyone else based on what they do and expecting everyone else to judge us based on our intentions, aren't we? Our hearts condemn us. But John doesn't stop there. And see, that's where most of the world stops. That's even where most Christians stop. Because John says that even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Just like Leah, God sees who we are. Listen, there's three parts to every single one of us. There's the private, the personal, and the public. Okay? The public is what you want me to see and what you want everybody else in this room to see. The personal is the stuff your spouse knows. (laughs) And then there's the private. And unfortunately, oftentimes, the private parts of us are even the parts we ourselves don't even want to look at. It goes a long way. It begins to open the womb so Christ can clean it when we say, I am broken. I, I do stand condemned. I, I am a gossip. I, I, I do struggle with loving my neighbor. I, I do have jealousy. I, I, I have placed uh, the acquisition of, of the American dream on the throne of my heart rather than Jesus Christ. But God is greater than all of those things. And God loves us, and this is important. This is, I think, distinctive. God loves, and I'll be personal, that way you can't get mad at me, I don't think. I'm sure somebody can get mad at me. God loves me not because Ike Nicholson is so wonderful. God loves me because Jesus Christ steps in front of me, and it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God sees. You see, I cling to the hope of Jesus Christ and him alone. It is his righteousness. It is his obedience. It is his blessing. It is his victory over sin and death that I claim as my own. I don't earn my way to God's love. God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. God loves me because God is God. God sees our condition. And the one entity in all of the universe that you can be honest with, it's God. God knows who you are. When when, when I'm in prayer, and it's taken years to get this way, when I'm in prayer, I just simply confess the things that I know. Lord, let's be real here. Lord, South Suburban Christian Church is a bigger church than I already serve. Just a little bit bigger. They certainly have a, 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 a better-looking congregation. <laughs> Bring, it Bring it on home, preacher. <laughs> what time is it? And I had to say to the Lord, Lord, you know what? My pride can get in the way of this call. So I need to make sure that my pride stays out of it. It's important to be honest with yourself. It's important to be able to know what you are capable of so that Christ can step into your life and heal and mend and bind up those things that are broken. John goes on to say that once that happens, we have confidence before God. Our confidence is no longer in ourselves. Our confidence now is in the Father. And that drives us, John says, to ask I put it in brackets to pray. I mean, listen, when you first met your spouse and you, you went out to dinner, some of you might have been like, "Well, actually, we walked around the park our first date. Oh, no, I remember our first date now. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I just said that for effect. <laughs> Pastor Joe was, there. did I sell that? No. You know, I tell you what, I know what you do when you go out on a first date. You take her to the movies, right? You know why they do that? So you won't have to talk to her. (laughs) And it's not because you're not interesting. It's because they don't know what to say. But your relationship really didn't begin to grow until you got taken to dinner. Or you walked around the park. Or you sat and watched the sunset. Because how do we build relationships? We build relationships by getting to know each other. We build relationships by talking with one another. And how do we expect our relationship with God to grow unless we're in conversation with God, unless we're talking to God and praying to God. When we have confidence that God loves us and when we understand that God doesn't want to condemn us, that God wants to embrace us and lift us and heal us and bind us up, then we go to God and we receive the heart of God. God hears our prayers He knows us, and we begin to know Him. And then John adds this question, or this statement in here, uh, that oftentimes uh, uh, causes the world to say, "Uh uh-huh, I knew you'd finally get around to that. Because when that happens, when we recognize that God has seen us, that God knows who we are, when we've been bold enough and brave enough to open our hearts to God, when we have been bold enough to enter into a relationship with God, to be in conversation with God, then John says we can keep His commandments Ah, finally we got there. Now I can earn some righteousness on my own, right? Except that's not what the Bible says. Because the Bible's understanding of commandments is, uh, is fortunately much different than how we understand commandments. Because the Bible defines it. What is God's commandment? Y'all know it. You learned it in Sunday school. What's the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and being, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the great commandment. And John gives us the great commandment again. After God has entered into relationship with us, God attaches himself to us. Remember Levi? And then he gives us that great commandment. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That we believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. Now, I think that this is the fullness of what god calls each of us to do it's real easy and lots of us believe right lots of us can intellectually uh, confess oh i believe that jesus is the son of god that's the great statement of faith that's so important to the christian church we don't ask you to to confess a whole list of creedal statements we just simply say can you make the good confession do you believe that jesus is the christ the son of the living god and have you accepted him as your lord and savior we we can make this an intellectual exercise we uh, the christian church disciples of christ and the stone campbell movement as a whole has a long history of being very intellectual very, very rational and if we're not careful that great gift that we can have can also be our achilles heel it can be the very thing that tears us down our faith can all be in our head and not in our heart we can believe but not follow because when we follow, the second part of that commandment comes to bear on us, and love one another. What does it mean to love somebody? I have three kids. I'm an old dad. Most of, most of the, uh, my friends are graduating their children. Some of them are going to their daughter's weddings. I'm still putting diapers on mine. <laughs> Actually, my wife does the diapering. Having children was the most powerful thing that happened in my life because I truly understood what it meant to be willing to take a bullet for somebody. I love my children more than anything else. You need to know that. My children are the most, my family is the most important thing in my life. The day will come when you'll fire, if you call me, the day will come when you'll fire me or you'll make me move along or I'll retire or I'll move along. But my family will be with me the rest of my life. And you know what? That's the kind of love that Christ is calling for all of us to have for one another. That the person sitting next to you, you're called to love like you love your own children. Yes, even the crotchety one that's sitting behind you. (laughs) And what does that mean? It's a willingness to lay down your life for them. It's a willingness to take the second seat. Listen, I remember the day my son said to me, Daddy, can I have your last piece of bacon? <laughs> you can look at my wife, and, and I, without thinking, handed it to her, handed it to him, and then I stopped and I looked at my, my wife, and I said, oh my gosh, I love my son. Because loving one another means taking the back seat so that other ones, so that others are honored. Loving someone means taking a uh, 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 seat of inconvenience so that they can be convenient. Loving people who will come into this building, coming looking for the name of Jesus Christ, a willingness to put aside anything that makes us comfortable or sets us at ease in order to invite the stranger in, to invite the non-believer to consider the love that God has for them through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to love. And that's a tall order. And it's not something that we'll learn the first day or the second day. And that above anything is our act of praise. Because God says to the prophets, I don't want your bulls, I don't want your sacrifices. What I want to see you do is to love justice, to love mercy, to do kindness, to walk humbly with your God. That's the act of praise that you and I are called to do. That's what it means to truly worship the one true and living God. And I'm excited because no matter whether or not the vote goes well, you and I are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all the world's hatred does, all that does is empower the church to continue to stand up and shine the light of Christ's love. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, which teaches and speaks to us. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, which has descended upon this place, upon these people, even as the flames of fire did on that first day in Pentecost. Lord, we give you honor and praise that you've called us into your family to be followers of Jesus Christ that you've saw our brokenness, that you've heard our cry, that you've connected yourself to us by the wounds of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, you have led us into a life of praise, a life of service, a life of grace and mercy. Lord, we pray that everywhere these saints go this week, that they will emanate God's love in everything that they do, that folks who are broken, folks who are alone, folks who are hurting will sense the healing that you and only you offer in the name of the one whose name is greater than any name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, even Jesus. And the church said, Amen.